Welcome to Engage 360, Denver Seminary's podcast. Join us as we explore the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of scripture at work in our culture today. Hey friends, welcome again to Engage 360 at Denver Seminary. I'm Don Payne, your host, and we are very glad and grateful again that you've chosen to spend a little bit of time with us. This conversation today has got just significance with tentacles reaching in all kinds of directions because you can hardly have a conversation today about cultural events, about politics, or any other number of issues without the word or the concept of evangelicalism coming up in the conversation somewhere. Uh, For good or ill in people's minds, uh, that word, that concept of evangelical and evangelicalism tends to crop up all over the place when we're having uh, conversations about what's going on in our nation. And we're really uh, privileged this episode to have as our guest Dr. Walter Kim, who serves as the president of the National Association of Evangelicals. Uh, And I'm joined also by our our seminary president, Dr. Mark Young. So, uh, Dr. Kim, welcome to Engage 360. Thanks so much for being our guest. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, Mark, welcome back as well. You've uh, you've been a co-host for a, quite a number of episodes. Always good to have you here. Thanks, Don. And, and it's always a pleasure. I learn so much in these conversations. Well, Dr. Kim's uh, experience of America, I'm going to give you a little bio uh, that I've drawn, <clears throat> excuse me, selectively from from his website. His experience of America actually reflects the diversity of the country and of the evangelical community. I've actually seen Dr. Kim interviewed on the PBS NewsHour and deeply appreciate his, his reasoned voice as he represents this movement called evangelicalism that occupies such a volatile and sometimes controversial place in the public eye. Uh, Dr. Kim's own Christian journey has taken him through charismatic, mainstream evangelical, and reform traditions, and All of that has enabled him to enter a variety of denominational streams and learning from the best of what each tradition uh, offers. After serving uh, as pastor for about 15 years, I believe, in Boston's historic Park Street Church, um, which was a congregation that played a very key role in the founding of the National Association of Evangelicals, uh, he then served as pastor for leadership, and he currently serves as a teacher in residence at Trinity Presbyterian Church in Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, Dr. Kim received a B.A. from Northwestern University in philosophy and history, an M.Div. from Regent College in Vancouver, B.C., and a Ph.D. from Harvard University in Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations. Uh, he's taught classes at Boston College, Harvard University, and has contributed to a number of publications and uh, has about three decades worth of preaching, writing, and engaging in collaborative leadership to connect the Bible to significant intellectual, cultural, social issues of the day. So again, we're just really grateful. Uh, Probably the most important feature about him uh, I'm taking is that he's married to Tony Kim and they have two teenagers. Uh, um, I'll take it that's that's probably your most um, your most significant claim to fame, Dr. Kim. Absolutely. It is the most treasured thing in my life. Yeah. Um, as we get underway, uh, anything you want to add in terms of background or how, how is it that you perhaps found your way into your role as president of the NAE? Um, well, thank you for that very kind introduction. And um, it is true that uh, I've had something of a migrant experience and 
not only in different denominational traditions, but also different areas of the country. And my own experience as the son of an immigrant and refugee, I, I think also plays into this journey of faith. Um, I did not grow up in an evangelical household. My family did attend church uh, for a while, a Korean uh, church in New York City that was very much a central hub uh, for the new immigrant wave of Koreans that were moving into the city. Uh, it also attended some churches in rural uh, Western Pennsylvania, but I would have to say for the most part, that was a function of just, this is what communities did. They went to church. It wasn't until I hit high school and during my high school years um, was introduced to the gospel through a, a local evangelical youth pastor that I came to what I would say is a, a real vibrant saving faith in Christ. Mm -hmm. um, even at that point, I didn't know that that was evangelicalism. Um, all I knew is that my life was changed by Jesus. And uh, that journey led to uh, something of what you have described, both in campus ministry, I used to be on staff with crew um, and uh, and then pastoral ministry and then uh, thoughts of teaching at a secular university to, to try to be a witness for Christ and hence the degree and at Harvard in ancient Near Eastern languages, but then pivoted back because of my experience at Park Street Church, which you noted was instrumental in the founding of the NAE, as well as a number of pivotal Christian organizations um, in the kind of mid to later 1900s. Um, and it was there that I um, had this deep sense of what could be accomplished in the local church, uh, both in a city, both uh, toward the university, being Boston, Boston being a university town, historic evangelicalism, but deeply engaged in contemporary issues. And so um, serving as a pastor there, being introduced to um, World Relief and uh, the National Association of Evangelicals through my connection there uh, both kind of brought me into this world and uh, into this current position. Hmm. I know Mark has a probably a laundry list of questions for you uh, that I certainly want to uh, to defer uh, to his questions. But just initially, I'm I'm curious, Dr. Kim, as 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 volatile as the word evangelical and evangelicalism are in our American culture today. Um, what made you want to take on the presidency of an organization with that name? Yeah, that's right. You know, when I stepped into the role in 2020, I was uh, offered many congratulations, but um, I would have to say some condolences and warnings <laughs> as I was stepping <laughs> into that role. I would imagine. Um, yeah, it's complicated, of course, and it's a deeply contended issue, and it's deeper uh, than a mere branding problem. Um, there is something substantial going on right now, some soul-searching as well as refinement of the evangelical movement in America. But you know, this is true of the essence of evangelicalism as a renewal movement, as something of a populist, revivalist renewal movement. It has experienced waves in its own history uh, of strength and ebbing um, weakness uh, and has required a renewing work of God's spirit. Um, I sense here in this particular moment uh, a deep 
challenge, but also an opportunity. Of course, we don't know in the providence of God what will, you know, be the outcome a, a decade from now. But I sense deeply that this is an inflection point, a critical inflection point in the movement of evangelicalism. And again, um, while it is something that is contended and at times profoundly problematic, it also holds some real opportunities of renewal. Hmm. Mark? Yeah. Thanks so much, Walter, for being with us. As I said earlier, I want to follow up with you. I share much of the same sentiment that you've voiced and have used even that phrase inflection point for the movement. I think terminology is something we need to probably all agree upon. Evangelical, evangelicalism, evangelical movement. Uh, how do you, if not define, how do you describe the contours of how we use that word, those words, evangelical, evangelicalism, and evangelical movement. Yeah, it's a, you know, a classic word in the sense that historians have um, referred to it to describe a certain type of impulse and movements within Christianity. Um, you know, before the Reformation was called the Reformation, as you and maybe many of your listeners will know, that it, it was evangelical. Um, so Luther described himself uh, not as a reformer initially, but as an evangelical, uh, because for him, in the German context, what he was seeking to do was recapture the gospel, the good news, the essence of it, uh, the vitality of it in a primitive and direct way. And by primitive, I don't mean, you know, barbaric. I mean primitive in the sense that recapturing the, the initial essence of what gave rise to the good news of Jesus Christ. And um, ever since that moment, whether it's the period of the First Great Awakening, uh, the renewal movements in England and in America, and increasingly all throughout the world, the way that God has used this kind of evangelical renewal, this impulse um, throughout the world. It, it captures a real powerful, not only theological set of commitments, you know, high view of scripture and conversion to Christ, uh, an expression of transformation that results in action and, and a real strong focus on the centrality of the cross. Those may be some theological commitments that um, are distinctive of evangelicalism, but there's also, I would say, beyond the principles, there are the, there are the postures. And that posture, I would say, includes this sense of yearning for the authentic renewing, uh, recapturing of the essence of Christianity. So that presumes a context in which such renewal is needed. So ironically, evangelicalism has baked within itself an assumption that there's periods of more abundant faith where the church is in fact in need of re renewal. Um, and so that, that posture, it's not just the principles, but it's the posture, this kind of ever deepening sense of uh, a need of renewal. I think that's one element of the posture. I think another element, and this is both its strength as well as its weakness, is because it's highly populist, because it's very transformational on the individual level, 
you know, think of the person, whether it's at the tent revival meeting uh, or a Billy Graham crusade coming down to trust Jesus to this, you know, just as I am being sung with the individual transformation, there isn't as much uh, given in evangelicalism to public theology, you know, the structures of how do we understand the nature of biblical faith with respect to institutions and systems and culture. Um, so it's strength of populism and personal transformation, uh, renewal, uh, sometimes comes at a cost of the enduring institutional understanding of Christian faith. Um, and we see ourselves right now groping for that kind of public theology. Do you think that it is in fact to perhaps a lack of that sense of institutional expression or public theology that's brought us to this time that you've described as an inflection point? I think so, um, because, you know, when America was predominantly uh, Christian, at least, you know, there was a civic religion that was deeply informed by Christianity. You can make all sorts of assumptions about the underlying values that would give a foundation to our institutions or social mores. But um, when those are no longer shared um, in an increasingly pluralistic post-Christian context, um, then you really have to consider, well, what are uh, the theological, philosophical, moral values that you know, provide that underpinning? And the lack of it, um, you know, really thought out, really engaged, really discipled into the life of the church, um, coupled with a general kind of proclivity toward the populist and renewal movement. Um, it, it means that in the vacuum of that kind of robust public theology, uh, we are going to be formed in our political views by the media, by, you know, our peers. Um, so, you know, the average evangelical probably has a ton of books on how to pray, how to study the Bible, a bunch of Bible studies, books on marriage, singleness, you know, how to be, have integrity at work, be honest, but probably not so many books on public theology, the nature of culture, of the integrity, not at work, but the integrity of work itself. You know, how does God think about economics? Um, churches have plenty of marriage retreats. Um, but where do you go for a retreat on public theology, our formation uh, in our civic duties, uh, particularly in a pluralistic society? I, I think the lack of those things are really telling right now, debilitating frankly, and in the absence of it, uh, we, we need to be formed. We're social, political creatures. Not, I'm not saying political in the sense that, you know, a political party or anything like that, but we're creatures that need to be organized in society. And um, if there's not some common worldview that holds us together, then in the absence of that, you know, we're going to have a you know, cacophony of voices coming in to shape us. Yeah. Dr. Kim, at some point um, in the conversation, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the current state of the evangelical movement. But before that, I want to pick up on a connection you've already made between evangelicalism and sort of populism or, or being a, a more populist movement. And I'm, I'm wondering, what is it, if anything, about evangelicalism that has 
lent itself to that or, or kind of paved the way to where we are now? Again, you know, so much of life is about a strength that has a shadow weakness. I think this is true personally. You know, many of our real strengths in life that enable us to thrive at our work or uh, in our friendships, they contain our shadow weakness. Um, and uh, I think this is true of evangelicalism. Mm. It, it should it should be noted that it is a powerful renewal movement, that God's spirit, and I owe my salvation to this. You know, when I became a Christian, I went to this um you know, meeting in which um, after hearing the four spiritual laws uh, from a, a youth worker, I'd been pondering it for a year or two in my life and and then went to this retreat. I'd never seen uh, hundreds of st- high school students gather together singing about Jesus before. I'd never seen that. Uh, what do they have that I don't have? And when I went to the gym that night that was left open for people uh, to reflect and to pray, I decided I just I just want to encounter God. If God is real, if what these kids are singing about is real, I want to meet you. And so I went there and to pray to meet God. And after what seemed like you know, an interminably long moment, um, I declared my religious experiment a failure. I got up to leave, and it was probably just ten minutes. You know, that was my attention span as a high school student. Yeah. I, I got up to declare my religious experience uh, experiment a, a failure, and. God met me in a powerful movement of the Spirit. Uh-huh. It, it was almost as if my head was opened up and God poured the Holy Spirit. I felt this tangible sensation uh-huh. from my feet up through my head, and my life was absolutely transformed. Absolutely yeah. transformed. Much of my Christian life has been trying to unpack what just happened in that moment <laughs> yeah. in the encounter of God. That's what makes a theologian he, out of a person. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's I tried right. to figure out what and happened so, to me. This is, this is I, I think I'm just very typical. You know, the experience will have different details, but the sense of a person giving a testimony like I just gave would be totally typical in an evangelical church. Details may differ, but the tenor, the nature of the story can be repeated millions of times mm-hmm. over. That is the strength, but with such a personal transformation, renewal of the spirit, it can be the case that we spend our time from one emotional high, one experience to the next, to foster a type of spirituality, to maintain that initial fervor, or at least to maintain the fervor that we heard about from our parents in their conversion. And, and so at some point, um, the questions need to arise. Is there something more that will sustain us beyond the experience, as true and real as the experience may be? I, I, I'm simply going to say, you take my experience, you multiply it over, and there's something that seems to be true about evangelicalism, that it's great strength, personal transformation, revival, renewal, an emotional encounter with God that even if we don't have it ourselves, we know how to recognize it, yeah. and we actually want it. Um, but that authenticity, that renewal, carries with it again the the weakness of 
um, an over sentiment, you know, sentimental experiential kind of faith that when it doesn't happen, when the questions are too complex, when life experiences don't match up with the problems that we face, um, what do we do with that? And systems, institutions, they're not emotional things. They're, they're things beyond the individual. So what, what does transformation and spiritual revival look like in those contexts? And that's what we're facing right now. Yeah, is that, is that perhaps what accounts uh, for the impulse toward uh, sim- simplifying everything and uh, reducing it to kind of bumper, a bumper sticker sloganish approach to very complex issues that we face in society? Yeah, I, I, I think there might be a combination of that um, with something that's distinctly American. Um, it's a, you know, American society is entrepreneurial. It's a country of immigrants. I mean, <clears throat> other than the Native Americans, everyone had immigrated at some point. And with an immigrant mentality, I, I hear this and I, I've seen this in my parents, there's a certain entrepreneurial spirit that would cause you to uproot yourself from your own home country, throw yourself in a completely new and um, maybe even dangerous context to start life again. And again, that entrepreneurial spirit brings with it all sorts of strengths, um, but it also brings with it a need for immediate results. Hmm. Um, You have stepped into uh, a crisis moment. It needs a result. And there's something about, I think, a national psyche that we have that's very pragmatic, very immediate in its desire, and Americans just get stuff done. Um, And that does mean an instinct to turn complex things into a neat business plan if you're that, you know, oriented in that way, or a three-point sermon if you're, you know, a preacher, or, you know, here are 10 things you can do. Uh, to improve your life or three steps. I mean, you, you name it. They're just, there's something about the American psyche that um, enables us and predisposes us to move that. So when you have the convergence of evangelicalism, which already has this populist streak in it, and kind of this American entrepreneurial pragmatism, risk-taking, you know, that those things converge. And I think it's particularly American. Yeah, I want to follow up as well on a couple of things that you've said. When I was working on this uh, recent book that came out, it occurred to me in the process of that book that the ability to to narrate a personal experience with God is probably the single most differentiating factor between those who would who would fall within the ranks of or identify with something like evangelicalism and other Christian expressions. Uh, we, we talk about having a relationship with God or walking with Christ. And I find that terminology almost uniquely used by those who are part of institutions and churches that are identified with the movement. It also occurs to me that there's a strong, strong streak in our very individual understanding or individualistic understanding of salvation that really leads to the possibility through the revival movements of a of a churchless Christianity, a churchless faith. 
And so we, we, you know, you blend in this entrepreneurial spirit, you blend in this populist uh, ethos with American individualism, and you end up with millions of people who talk about a personal relationship with Christ, but really don't have institutional forms or even theological foundations for creating presence in society that goes beyond, I'm going to share the four spiritual laws with the guy I work with. Right. Which is not there's nothing bad with that. But if we're talking about creating a public theology or a presence that speaks into public life, those theological foundations and historical and cultural factors that we've just talked about really mitigate against being able to create a coherent public theology. Right. And then I would take it a step further and say not having in our understanding of what it means to be Christian or have a relationship with God, anything relating to or, or um, framed by an expressive and meaningful ecclesiology or concept of the church, then we, we don't have those social identities and social underpinnings that allow us to find anything more than some vague understanding of patriotism or citizenship which then quickly devolves into partisanship in the way that we, we work out our thinking. I, I would argue that it is these weak theological foundations that individualize everything that really have cre has created the, the uh, context that, um, how I want to say this, that has spawned the crisis we find ourselves in where evangelical and the broader society really means little more than a partisan political identity. And that, I think, is the essence of the inflection point in uh, my mind. Uh, is what I'm saying resonating with your experience, Walter, or how would you like to take that and reframe it so that it perhaps makes more sense or is more reflective of what you're seeing? Uh Mark, there's so much that what you said makes sense and is compelling uh, in terms of our present moment. You know, let me pick up with this notion of individualism and <clears throat> the lack of our ecclesiology, our understanding of you know broader structures of church and life and society. And um, it's one of the again great strengths of evangelicalism in that it cuts across denominations. So you can have an evangelical who's a Pentecostal, who's a Presbyterian, Brethren, Baptist, you know, Methodist, Mennonite, and they're actually all part of the you know, network of the NAE, these denominations. And you also have the renewal movement that happens in the Catholic Church. Um, and many times there, there's a, great, a greater similarity between those uh, within the Catholic Church who are part of this renewal movement with other evangelicals than with other Catholics, because there is this testimony that could be given, experience of the spirit, a personal relationship with Jesus that transcends denomination. That is both beautiful, the ability to transcend the denomination, to make Jesus the centrality of what holds us together as Christians, but it also means because you can't transcend that there's nothing particular um, it, it, it's, it's made in something of the least common denominators. There's nothing particular about evangelicalism 
um, with respect to its denominational institutional affiliations because it transcends it. And again, there's a beauty in it, um, but there's, there's also weakness in that. And, and so this individualism that you describe, I think, is, is a part of that. Um, the political uh, element uh, right now, there is nothing that in what we've just said that would necessarily lead to evangelicalism becoming political and much less partisan in its politics. So I would say in order to explain how we get from individualism um, or trans-denominationalism or an experientialism to the partisan politics of the particular moment requires something more, something outside of just um, evangelicalism in and of itself, uh, because it doesn't seem to me a sufficient explanation. And curious to see, Mark, in your writing if uh, and consideration if, if there's this added element that you would um, bring forth yeah, thanks. Yeah, thank you for that. I, I would add one thing that I think is critical. We use the word uh, revivalism, renewal movement, and then we usually or often throw in that word populist around it. And I want to be clear, want us to be sure that when we say populist, we're not just meaning popular. Populism as a movement has some distinct characteristics that I think are very much a part of the evangelical ethos, particularly in relationship to the other sectors and other presence or other uh, entities in society. In almost every movement in evangelicalism where things have changed or the uh, rhetoric has changed, there's been a sense that we're against something. So we're not just a renewal movement, we're a reactionary movement. And even the founding of the National Association of Evangelicals was a desire to react against perhaps some of the more fundamentalist voices and thinking and disengagement and create a presence within society that was willing to engage outside of the boundaries that had been very thickly drawn in the uh, evangelicalism in the early 20th centuries. So populism almost always has a, 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 an image of an enemy, of a threat, of something that we have to fight against in order to sustain our movement. And I think evangelicalism, particularly in the last 50, 60 years, has allowed itself to fall prey to constantly be in a war mentality, constantly be the aggrieved, threatened entity that has to protect itself. So it's defend and attack, defend and attack at all points. Uh, I personally believe this has been exacerbated significantly uh, since the 70s, then again in the 90s, when we see a dramatic shift in political rhetoric from the Republican Party, certainly we could see it in the last two election cycles with a, and just an overt willingness to dehumanize those who think differently and cast them as the enemy. Uh, 
in that regard, I think we find ourselves at perhaps a more acute moment of crisis and in need of an inflection point because we've given in to those urges, those populist urges, seeing ourselves as the embattled and aggrieved uh, population. It also strikes me that <clears throat> this inflection point, you know, coupled with the increasing diversification of the country, secularization of the country, um, adds, uh, you know, many other dynamics and um, the regionalism of our country as well. It used to be the case that you could live in a particular region and um, by and large, have multiple generations that have just stayed in that region. So when I lived in New York City, um, you know, despite the fact that it had many um, different nationalities moving into the city, you could always find, you know, diehard New York Yorkers who would be there for generations. Same was true when I lived in Western Pennsylvania. And when you're in those regions and you by and large have a homogeneity of worldview um, that you can live comfortably with when you, you tend to think, well, this is America. Um, but with the transience of our country now, with social media, with the ability of people to constantly 24-7 be engaged with what's happening in different parts of the country. So, you know, whatever happens in a particular city is no longer just local news. It's now national news if something happens. Charlottesville is an example of that in 2017 with the Unite the Right rally. It, it was not just regional news uh, of a small town in central Virginia. It was national news and frankly, international news. So then, you know, what you're talking about are the possibilities to be aggrieved or dislocated at least. If not aggrieved, this sense that there was a, there's a loss of this country like, this is not the country I thought I knew or grew up in. Um, it's because all the regional differences, all the differences that are now added with um, ways of immigration, which has always been true, but now we see it in, in, in fresh and, and dynamic ways. Um, it, it just means the plethora of issues for which we feel um, some measure of reaction, that you describe it, or dislocation it's it's there's a constant cycle of it so yeah we feel barraged in a way um that is unprecedented even if there have been other periods of our time where dislocation has occurred um the mix is really unique the, the pace of it the the constant barrage of it because of our access to information and the weakening of those social ties means that there's little to anchor us um, you know, with a firm uh, either civic faith or communal identity. And, and that gets coupled with religion. And when it gets coupled with religion, then there's a whole mix of things that make it potential, potentially um, you know, deeply problematic for um, for Christian faith, uh, because then it now becomes uh, accumulate, you know, it, it accumulates all sorts of other issues, identities um, that we now have to tease apart. Dr. Yeah. Kim, this is this is so fascinating, and and 
if we could maybe put one final question in front of you, or maybe a two-part question, what what is what is your vision for where you'd love to see evangelicalism, particularly in this country, move? And what can we do, uh, either at a macro or in, on individual levels, to kind of change our current trajectory in that direction? There are three things that I would say, and then I'll unpack. Um, one is that we have to learn how to lead from the margins and not the middle. Um, okay. I think Christians and evangelicals, you know, because of our her- heritage, because we were founded as a nation, deeply imbued with faith, it it feels like we have lost our central place of power and influence. And frankly, we have. We are no longer the middle. We are now in the margins and a plurality of margins that exists in this country. Um, and that that's unnerving to many people. Mm. Um, and it could come in the form of racial identity. Like, wow, this is no longer... Um, the kind of country that I thought it was going to be. I, I think of Charlottesville in, in this uh, way, that in 1980, it was 80% white, 18% um, black. In, ni- in 2040, it um, is projected to be about 40% white, 29% Hispanic, and 13% black, 14% Asian American. Like that is radically different. Yeah. Um, and so the sense of transformation means we've got to figure out what it means to lead from the margins, not from the middle. And secondly, I think when you have that dislocation, it's possible um, to experience fear, a sense of loss, um, of being unsettled. And we have to recover a deep, deep sense of um, what does it mean to be people of faith who do not trade in the language of fear, who do not give in to the rhetoric of fear, but realize that we have an incredible missional moment um, right now. And uh, thirdly, I think we should be open to the fact that according to First Peter, judgment begins with the house of God, that this is a period for us to experience the refining uh, crucible of God. And it may not be the case that um, when we come out of this, that we'll look at ourselves and, and say that we've become the dominant power again. Um, it may be that we should look at ourselves and say the first are last. Mm. The, 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 the least are the greatest. And as we lead from the margins, as we have an attitude of faith, as we open ourselves up for the purification of God, um, maybe the church becomes smaller, uh, hmm. but in the smaller size, it becomes more deeply committed and rooted uh, to being the kind of followers that um, honor God and make a tra- uh, transformation of society. I-, I think this is an extraordinary moment um, that we have. My, my son just graduated from col- uh, high school a year ago, and um in his graduating class, there were more Muhammads than there were Michaels. I mean, mm-hmm. this is an incredible transformation. And rather than thinking about lamenting the loss of the America that was, I look at this and I think, this is like the greatest missionary opportunity that we have to oh, be yeah. a witness for Jesus. Like, this is an incredibly 
fertile moment for the church if it could quit destroying itself. <laughs> if from it the inside, right. In, from the inside. If it could keep this fervor toward Jesus um, and not toward identity and preserving place and culture, um, I think we have an incredible opportunity to proclaim Jesus Christ in a fresh way. Wow. So I say, I say amen to that. And I would add that one of the blessings of doing the kinds of work that Don and I do in theological education is being around those who are going to shape the next evangelicalism. And quite frankly, they, they know in many cases that the movement has to be different, that the posture has to be different, that what we value in our faith and in our presence in the society has to be different in order for the gospel to be first and foremost what we're known for. I'm very hopeful about those that I see preparing and currently leading ministry who are thinking deeply and thoughtfully about how we need to be different for the sake of the gospel in this wonderful, I love your phrase, missional moment that God's created for us. Well, what fitting and poignant words for us to put some deep roots in. Dr. Walter Kim, thank you very much for sharing your your experience, your, your insights, your perspective with us. We're so grateful. What a gift it has been to be with you all. Thank you, Don. Thank you, Mark. Yeah. Friends, yeah, we've been talking with uh, Dr. Walter Kim, who is the president of the National Association of Evangelicals, a good, uh, good friend of all of us who are uh, trying to be, figure out what faithfulness to the unchanging gospel looks like in very complex times. Uh, we're grateful for his time, grateful again to Dr. Mark Young, our president, for uh, participating with us in this conversation. Friends, we'd love to hear from you. If you would love to contact us, you can do so with our email address, which is podcast at denverseminary.edu, and would encourage you to um, give us a rating or review on whatever podcast platform you utilize to access these conversations. We'd really appreciate that, and that will help us um, extend the reach to some other listeners as well. Friends, until another episode, we hope the Lord uh, continues to work faithfulness out in and through your life. Take care.